Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andy Lucian. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to talk about the sponsor, Atlas VPN. If you surf on the internet, you need to keep yourself protected, especially if you're doing work in public places. Having a VPN can protect you from this. Having a VPN also will allow you to bypass firewalls. If you're interested in getting a VPN, I'll include a link for a free trial in the podcast description. Today we are joined by Tom Van Winkle of the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust. He is currently the president of the Battlefields Trust. He is from New Jersey, and in 1996, Tom became a founding member of the then newly formed Friends of Wilderness Battlefield Group. Tom held several key positions in the Friends Battlefield Group and was the president for five terms. Tom has written historical and preservation articles for the Civil War News, the Freelance Star, Culpepper Star Exponent, Wilderness Dispatch, and on and on. Tom joins us today to talk about battlefield preservation and the work that the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust is doing. All right, so today we are joined by Tom Van Winkle of the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust. Tom, how are you today? I'm doing fine, Andrew. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for sitting down and joining us. So uh, looking forward to this discussion, talking about uh, some somewhat of the battles, but primarily the battlefield preservation. Uh, so to begin, I, I want to know, and I'm sure our listeners do, about the Central <clears throat> Virginia Battlefields Trust. What's your guys' mission? Uh, what's the history of it? When was it founded? Uh, what do you guys do? Okay, I think I can answer that. Um, <clears throat> back in 1996, um, a, a, new, a park historian in here, we have the National Fredericksburg Spotsylvania National Military Park surrounds this area, which includes the uh, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, Wilderness and Spotsylvania Courthouse battlefields. And um, I realized this, this area that I'm in is directly dead center between Washington, D.C. and Richmond. So you can imagine back in the Civil War, when they were first playing capture the flag, trying to get each other's capital, uh, what some what an uh, an area dead center of the two was was going to face, and and we faced it um, between 1862 and 1864. In a brief 18 month period, there were over 100,000 casualties on four battles here. So this is the probably the bloodiest ground in the Civil War, the most fought over area. Uh, four battles fought here in the same land over and over again. So what happened in uh, 1970, the um, area started to see a tremendous rise in population. In fact, it grew more than four times in Virginia as a whole beginning in 1970, basically for the same reasons that the it was popular in the Civil War, because again, it's between two major capitals or two major business cities. So it became the bedroom community for two, you know, for Richmond and, and D.C., so what happened was a park historian, a gentleman by the name of um, Don Fons, who uh, is, is lauded as the actually the creator of modern day uh, preservation, had noticed that this battlefields were beginning to get gobbled up, housing development, strip malls, that type of thing. So back, back in the early days, in the 1880s, some of the veterans actually came back here and bought small parcels of land to try to save um, what they had fought on themselves. And those parcels were basically trench lines and small things like that. This area was rural. It was nothing but farmlands. 
And the North, the National Park Service didn't come here and officially start until 1927. And they started buying properties. But again, they never envisioned anything being anything more than simple farmland. So they bought small parcels along trench lines. Um, and what happened back in, in 1996, there was a small group of people here in the area started to see that the Park Service couldn't keep up with purchasing these battlefields. Um, and they were just being lost day by day. Hundreds of acres a day were just being lost. So what happened is in the same year, um, a lot of local people got together and decided that we need to come together and put together a group to help the Park Service. We need to do something to, to purchase more of these properties because these battlefields, uh, you know, 100,000 people died here. There's 100,000 stories in the ground, and, you know, in the ground and in the grass. We needed to save it. So in September 1996, uh, Central Virginia Battlefield Trust was incorporated as a 501c3, and we began to um, vet properties and go out and begin to purchase battlefields to save them. Um, the other thing that happens is with the National Park Service, the government cannot purchase a property above the, above the appraised value. Well, nobody in their right mind sells their property at appraised value, so many, many acres of battlefield land were being lost over 30 or 40 or $50,000 because the, the park service couldn't get up to that next level. So we would step in and we would pay that extra balance, buy the property and sell it back to the park service what they could afford. And we would take that 30, 40, $50,000 loss as, as part of it to save it. Hmm. So that's how we started. Um, and 26 years later, 1600 acres and about 10 plus million dollars later, um, we're piecing together these battlefields here um, on, on, all landscapes. Um, so that's how we started. Um, we're a local group because we have local ties here. Um, there are larger groups like groups like the American Battlefield Trust, which most people know, but they're a national group and they they tend to have a lot more on their plate and they don't look at the smaller parcels like we do because we're actually stitching together what was lost over the years. So that's where we are. We have two paid employees and we have the rest of us, the board of directors, uh, are made up of, uh, you know, local leaders, historians, bankers, things like that. And we're all volunteer. I'm volunteer. I've been doing this for 26 years, all volunteer. So uh, we're a small group that does some pretty big things. Yeah, it sounds like it. So you guys work with the National Park Service. Do you guys have your own lands that you hold on to and maintain, or do you always give it to the NPS? Well, we, we haven't, uh, when we say we work with the park service, if they, if they ask us to help out with a property they have an issue with, we'll help out. Otherwise, we're a separate entity. We're not part of the park service. So all the lands we have, we, we try to put an easement on and either let the park service have it or get it into the, into the county. Otherwise, we hold on to it. We, we have uh, several hundred acres that we continually hold on to and pay taxes on. But we try to get those made into parks or into the park service inventory or something of that nature. But being a separate land trust entity, we have no, no affiliation with the park other than to help them out then when they get an opportunity. Or if it's within their core boundary area and they want to purchase that property from us and they can, then we'll do that. Right. So you mentioned that you're a volunteer there. So what is your role exactly? How long have you been a part of the uh, Central Virginia Battlefields Trust? Well, I started back here in 1994 when I, my wife and I moved down from New Jersey. And uh, there was a group that we started called the Friends of Wilderness Battlefield, which we simply focused on the Wilderness Battlefield. Wilderness Battlefield, if, you don't, if you're going down the, the Eastern Corridor of 95, 
and you turn and go west down three, you go through all the battlefields. But you first go through Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, and then you have to go about 10 miles out to the wilderness. And um, people tend to stop at Chancellorsville for some reason and didn't pay much attention to the wilderness. And the wilderness literally was the turning point of the Civil War, right? I always seem to upset the Gettysburg fans when I say that, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> so when we did that, we we worked, then we were a friends group of the Park Service, and we, we worked on trenches and signs and did, and did everything cosmetic to the battlefield. Uh, and I did that for uh, many years, and I wound up being the five-term president of that group. You know, you miss a meeting, you come back, you wind up being president of something. <laughs> so um, then I had taken some time off because my uh, day job travel was quite intense. And then um, Central Virginia Battlefield Trust, they asked me to come on board, and I did as a communications director for several years. I created the website and handled the communications, then I did the newsletter for a while. And then about I guess it's seven years ago, they asked if I would be interested in being president of it. And for some reason I said, yes. So here I am. So um, I'm the president of the board of directors. I have one executive director working under me and we have a uh, chief executive officer officer under him. So I basically uh, run the group and um, handle the meetings and all the issues. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's the less glamorous part. All right. I got to put a pause really fast on the civil war talk. Since you mentioned you're from New Jersey, are you a Springsteen fan? Absolutely. In fact, uh, back back before anybody knew Springsteen, I used to spend a lot of time in Asbury Park at the Stone Pony. Did you? Uh, so I knew of Springsteen before he, anybody else did. And before he, he and the E Street Band were together, uh, you know, Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. Uh, yeah, I was part of that, uh, that audience. <laughs> I had to ask, because before, like, besides the Grateful Dead, John Mayer, Bruce Springsteen's like my all-time favorite. I'm huge Springsteen fan, so I had to ask, even though we're yeah. you know, the Civil well, if, if you're from Jersey and you're not a Springsteen fan, they won't let you back there. So. We, we could start a different podcast, I guess, if we wanted to go in depth. About yeah. That. I could do that. But So anyway, so that's kind of uh, some background on the trust and, and what you do there. Uh, and then so behind you here, we have Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, the Wilderness, Spotsylvania Courthouse listed. Are these the main battlegrounds you focus on? Are there any other battlefields? Or are those the four you guys have worked to save? Well, being Central Virginia, those are the four we focus on. Uh, we have gone outside of that. Um, as we went outside to uh, Brandy Station, which is not too far from here, and saved uh, uh, $700,000 worth of ground at Brandy Station at one point. But those are the four battlefields we focus on. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real challenge to put these battlefields back together. I can imagine. So, so when you guys get them, they're kind of piecemeal. You'll just get a piece here and a piece there, and you kind of try to get it all back together. Yeah, Chancellorsville, for instance, and those of you who know the Battle of Chancellorsville, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is Stonewall Jackson's flank attack, probably the most talked about flank attack in military history. Um, that all was segmented with housing. Um, and so for 26 years now, I, I, years ago when I took over the presidency, I made a statement that I, I thought I was going to live to regret, but I'm not. I said that I was going to hopefully we were going to be able to stitch enough of these properties together. Where we could walk a long portion of that original flank attack without being interrupted. And with a, with a purchase we just made now, um, we're able to do that. So what we've been doing is buying house by house, property by property. Um, and we work with the American Battlefield Trust also. So if we have things, they'll buy property. So between the two of us, we have strung together quite a long stitch of the flank attack where you can walk it. Um, and again, it's just piecemeal, piece by piece, an acre here, three acres here, 10 acres there. Um, so it, it's taken 25 years to put that together. 
Um, so it's a real long range plan and you have to keep your eye on these properties, especially now, because sometimes they'll go up for sale and you won't even know it, they're sold. So um, it's- When you sell these properties or when you buy these properties when they're for sale, how do you guys go about transforming them and what's the process? Well, first, the process is being we vet the property, make sure that the property is uh, we don't just buy any property. It's got to make it's got to have meaning, a story. It's got to have a reason to purchase it, because otherwise you could put a fence around Virginia and call it safe because everything from colonial times uh, to through the Civil War, you know, Virginia is the spot. Uh, so once we determine that property we want, we'll go to the owners and we'll, we'll come up with a deal that works for both of us. And once we purchase it, we have to go out and to go to the American Battlefield Protection Program, which is a government entity for, for grants. And then we'll go for um, the Virginia um, entity that handles grants for the battlefields here. And between the two grants, hopefully we can get most of the property paid for. And whatever is left is what we have to solicit donations for. And then in the case, uh, if, in the early days, we were lucky. We bought land that had nothing on it. It was just land. So it was an easy purchase. You didn't have to do anything to it. Um, we looked to interpret it, put trails on it. But lately, what's left are all the lands with the houses and buildings on it. Hmm. And when you put an easement on a property, you're allowed by the, the, the DHR to have five years before you must take down any obstructions on that property. So we'll have a five-year period where we can try to raise money and, and remove these buildings. Um, and that could be anywhere from $60,000 to, you know, wherever, because it's very, very expensive to re reduce those buildings, raise those buildings, and then get rid of all the debris. So, but our intent is to bring it back to that 1860, you know, three to five vision, that view of what it looked like back then. Mm -hmm. And how do you guys exactly determine this land so how, how do you go about finding land that's at risk or that's and, and go about saving it how do you know which land is important early on when we started the organization we put together a binder with all the properties first of all what we work off is the core battlefield land there was years ago a commission was put together to find out what the civil war core battlefield areas were so we work within that area and we look at the areas that we say we need to save, and then we see what's on them. All right, are there businesses on them? Are there homes on there? Is it just vacant land? And then we approach the owners to see if they're ready to sell. And that was kind of a low-hanging fruit for many years. That low-hanging fruit is long gone. So now what we have to do is keep an eye on the real estate, keep an eye on making sure it's not coming up for sale. Um, you know, because we're local, we get to talk to people, we'll find out families are saying, well, we may want to sell that. And we say, well, give us first refusal. So it's constant contact and, and relationships with these landowners um, in order to be able to stay on top of it. And having said that, we also have, believe it or not, a great relationship with the developers here. Um, most people think, well, you must fight with those guys all the time. We don't fight with them at all. We CBBT has a win-win philosophy, and we have several developers here um, that work with us and have actually donated land to us. They get tax credits for it, and we'll get the donation of the land. Um, some large purchases were made where the developer purchased the property and held on to it until we could come up with the money and then sold it to us. So it, it's a really largely relationship-based um organization and a way of doing things so but you have to keep on top of the properties because nowadays with the that's slowing down a little bit with the real estate boom uh they don't you don't even see a for sale sign all of a sudden you hear that somebody's looking at the property right <laughs> yeah my father's in that business so i can attest to that the real estate is crazy 
So you, you mentioned relationships. We, we mentioned the National Park Service. So how do you guys determine what stays in the Battlefields Trust hands and what goes to the Park Service? Anything that the Park Service, the Park Service has co congressionally um, written boundaries. Anything within that, they're able to procure. So if we come up with the land that's within their boundaries, the first thing we do is we say, hey, we've got this. Are you interested in it? Of course they are. Um, and then what happens is they'll run it through their um, process, which is, is not always expedient. Let's, let's be nice about it. It's the federal <laughs> government. Let's, let's face it. And uh, we, like we, we, we had two parcels of Grant's headquarters in, uh, over on the uh, Orange Turnpike and Plank Road. That was where Grant had his headquarters in the wilderness, Grant and Meade. And we had two parcels and it took us several years. But last year, we were able to get that in the park inventory. So we had that for, I don't know, seven, eight years. We paid taxes on it. And, and that's how long it took to get it in the park inventory. But if they, if they can get it, they will take it. Now, if it's out of the park inventory, we don't have a chance of that happening. So we'll be holding on to it. Um, the only way we can get that in the park is that the park requests a, a, a boundary adjustment to their area. And you can have a minor or a major one. And that sometimes happens. Most of the time does not. So if we have a piece of land that we have to hold on to, we'll take a like, like we have Myers Hill on a spot swing to battlefield was one of the few untouched pieces of large battlefield that's around. We, we have 91 acres of a pristine untouched battlefield with trenches, artifacts, old home sites and things of that nature. Wow. Um, we're looking to make that a, uh, a county park, civil war park. So that'll be something we'll be working on for years with the county and that'll go into the county's hands with an easement. But anything other than that, we're left with and we're left with in perpetuity because there's no place, nothing else you can do with it. And when you guys hold on to it, is it open to the public or is it is it just kind of sitting there? It depends on the property. Um, we have a, several properties that are open to the public. We have Pelham's Corner, which was part of the Fredericksburg battle. That's where John Pelham had one cannon and held off the Union Assault and Slaughter Pen Farm for several hours. We had that's open to the public. We have Harris Farm, which is one of the last last battles in the Spotsylvania Courthouse battle on May 7th or May 14th, I believe. And uh, that's open to the public, but it's difficult to open them um, because sometimes where they are are not really accessible. Mm. Myers Hill was, we, the original, original 74 acres we bought had no access. It was landlocked. And then we got a, an additional 17 acres, which gave us the access. So now we're able to have trails and signage and interpretation there. So our intent, yes, is to open up everything we can to the public as we can. But some of these things are just in, in some impossible places. Well, so that's some of the background on what you guys do and what you do specifically. Uh, so let's take a look maybe at the first battlefield you guys have worked to preserve, which is Fredericksburg. Um, what is so significant about this ground to so the audience? If you could sum it up, why is the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust? What is their main focus with this land, the importance of it for our listeners out there? Well, Fredericksburg, um, Ambrose E. Burnside, which there's, there's, there's as many people that make fun of him as a, that, that uh, you know, don't. <laughs> but Ambrose E. Burnside, general for the Union, he was appointed um, commander uh, against his wishes. He had many times told Lincoln he felt more comfortable as a subordinate than a commander. But he wound up being the commander in 1862. And uh, again, they were looking to get to Richmond. So you had to go through Fredericksburg. Well, a lot of things happened to Fredericksburg. A lot of firsts in warfare in the United States. 
Uh, you had a situation where the Union had the high ground on one side of the river and then Fredericksburg was on the other side and the Confederates occupied that. So what the Union had to do is they had to cross the river. They had to get across the Rappahannock. So they created three sites, three pontoon sites where they tried to get across. So that was one of the first, not, not the first, but one of the most um, interesting times when you had Union engineers trying to build pontoon bridges while under fire from the Confederates. And that resulted in a situation where they used the actual pontoons that would hold up the bridges and made a marine amphibious crossing in those pontoons to get on the banks of Fredericksburg. That was one of the first times it was actually an amphibious landing in warfare um, at that time. And they eventually took, you know, the uh, Fredericksburg side and they occupied the town. So that became another first where it was the first time American troops had occupied an American town in the United States. So that was another first. And then of course you had with everybody uh, thinks about Fredericksburg as a stone wall. That's where Burnside kept rushing one division after another at the stone wall, seemingly a futile attempt and, and very few, if anybody ever reached that stone wall it was an absolute slaughter. Um, but what most people don't understand is that on the right flank of the Confederates was a place called Slaughter Pen Farm. And that's literally um, Frank O'Reilly, the historian here, always says where the battle was won and lost. That's where the Union actually broke through Jackson's line on Prospect Hill and almost, you know, took the day. But there was a lot of firsts in that battle. And, and Burnside has always uh, given a hard time for giving one troop, one division after another against the stone wall. But actually what he was doing was keeping the Confederates occupied while the rest of his army was trying to go around the flank on the other side of the Confederates. So there was a lot more to that battle and, and they, you know, they lost and they, they didn't get anywhere, but it was a, you know extremely interesting battle. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's a little bit of an overview for the listeners. What, what parts of the battlefield of Fredericksburg have you guys been able to preserve perhaps uh, well, some of the, the biggest sites you guys were able to capture? The first and the biggest site, the first, it was actually the first site when we became an organization in 1996, early in 1997, behind the stone wall, there's a, a rise, a very high rise where there was a, a school up there and they were selling the property. And that's where the Washington artillery um, had been placed. And that artillery was in support of the Confederates behind the stone wall. And that came up for sale and we were a fledgling group. We had no money. <laughs> Um, we had no idea what to do. And two of our original members met with, it was, it was nuns owned the property, Brompton up there and, um, made a deal and for a couple hundred thousand dollars. And then we got another group involved with some more of the property and the whole property came out to one point something million dollars, which we had none of. So at the same time, the Civil War Trust, which is now American Battlefield Trust, which started out as the Association for the Preservation of Civil War Sites, uh, stepped in. And between the two of us, we got that property. Wow. If we didn't have that property, you'd be looking at the stone wall and, the, and a very important rise behind it where the artillery was wouldn't be there. And that story would be totally, completely different right now, being able to look at that part of the battle. So that was the first and the most important one that I would say we did, um, Slaughter Pen Farm. For those, again, that's the other side of the, the uh, Fredericksburg battle. That was uh, 208 acres, I believe, um, right next to an airport. 
and the airport had uh, asked the owners if they would sell it to them because they wanted to enlarge the airport. But that was the major portion of the fighting in in the in the uh, Fredericksburg battle. Uh, CVBT had been courting those owners for years, and we were in the three million dollar range with that particular piece of property. Well, uh, they they got a uh, um, real realtor involved, and that three million went up to twelve million. So American Battlefield Trust was looking at it and they were saying, well, maybe we can purchase it. But their board of directors said that's too much money. There's never, ever in history been that much money paid for a piece of Civil War Battlefield. So our board of directors got together and we told the, the, the American Battlefield Trust, we'll give you a million dollars. We'll raise a million dollars towards it if you decide to do this. And that changed the idea. Um, so it was approved and that battlefield was purchased. And that battlefield was purchased and just paid off last month after all these years, 16 years, it took to pay that battlefield off. But wow. that battlefield is saved um, and it's extremely important. It's open to the public. And thanks to the American Battlefield Trust and our donation and some other entities, that still stands as the most money ever paid for a Civil War battlefield to date. So it sounds like there's not one thing threatening these battlefields it's, it's everything schools airports housing is that correct exactly everything everything is you know this this area is growing i, I moved down here in 94 and i hate to sound like an 80 year old guy you know i'm not <laughs> on, on the rocking chair i remember when but you know it's been 20 what 27 years 28 years and we went from three traffic lights on the main route artery to over 20 i mean it's just non-stop unbelievable when i moved down here there was a golf course and a mall and a few stores now it's um, it's unrecognizable. So everything is looking for property. Everybody is looking to put something up, and it's just it's nonstop. It's it's uh, it's been described as one of the most challenging areas to save battlefields in the country. Wow! So it's very important work you guys are doing. So we have Fredericksburg. The next one on your list is Chancellorsville. Um, so obviously we have Lee versus Hooker here. Uh, you want to run us through a little quick overview of this one as well, then we can talk about some of the. Uh, lands that you guys have saved? Yeah. Um, Chancellorsville is interesting. I think the, the thing that comes out of that more often than not is uh, Jackson's flank attack. But what people don't remember is that um, Hooker actually began the maneuvers, his maneuvers at the beginning of the battle with his own flank attack, which nobody remembers. That was very successful. But basically what happened was Hooker was trying to gain, you know, again, the flanks of the, of the, of the uh, Confederates. And um, Lee did something that he, you know, most people would say that was crazy. He said, well, look, we're going to divide the army. And understanding throughout the Civil War that the Confederates are always normally outmatched two to one. There was always twice as many Union forces as there were Confederate forces, no matter where they went, wherever they fought. That's just the basic ratio. And, and, and General Lee decided, well, I'm going to split that smaller force. Um, and it worked. Um, and he sent Jackson on his, his maneuver to go around and try to catch the right flank of the Union. Um, general Double O Howard, what they call O Howard of the Union, was the unfortunate general who had the uh, command of the right flank of the Union Army. And it was a hanging flank, meaning that usually a flank will come out and will have a, a bend to it. So like a skirmish bend so that they were protected against anybody flanking. But this was a hanging flank. It just stopped. Um, with no protection and, and um, Jackson went all the way around came up on the side of him and just routed 
the, uh, the, uh, the Union Army. So we had saved um, a piece. The early piece was 100 acres. It was called McClaw's, Le McClaws Ledge or Edge. And that was a piece of property that McClaw had held the Union back so that Jackson could get around the behind them. So he protected Jackson's army. And um, Hooker, for, for fighting Joe Hooker, they called them, but that was kind of taken out of context in, a, in an article written one time. It was The articles was written and said something about, and they were fighting Joe Hooker, and somebody just took it and called them fighting Joe Hooker. So <laughs> take care. If you're a Hooker fan, great. If you're not, you're not. But Hooker was at a place called Chancellorsville Inn. That was his headquarters. And um, there were both artillery below and above that. Below was the Union artillery sh shooting uphill and the Confederate was shooting downhill. And the Confederates had actually had a shell hit the house with Blue Hooker off the porch. And um, he was dazed, confused, got on his horse and, and, and he never was really right after that. And that's kind of where many historians say he got his, his oh, hooker's always drunk kind of thing. He wasn't really always drunk. He was just not right after being blown off a porch with an artillery shell. Um, but Chancellorsville, that whole flank attack, and we've, we've saved, I think, 380-something acres of Chancellorsville in about 14 properties, because the properties were five acres, one acre, 1.2 acres. But that's where we started stitching together that flank attack. So on their own, you, we buy an acre in the middle of nowhere, and people go, what good is that? And then we'd say, wait, and then the house next to it would come up for sale. We bought that. Now it's five acres. So what we've done is put together a tremendous amount of property on that uh, flank attack so that it's getting pieced together pretty rapidly. And when you buy these properties, do you tear the houses down and then just kind of let the land return to its natural state? That's what we need to do. Yeah. I could say within that five-year period we talked about before, we'll help tear those houses down. There was a there was one piece that was called the, uh, it was actually a castle. It was a brick castle that was an actual, um, I would call it a military store. They sold military antiques and things like that. It was there forever. Um, and it was a bomb shelter. I mean, it was built to the point where if there was a nuclear holocaust, that's where you wanted to be. So we purchased that property, but we had to tear that down. And we did not know the extent of the construction on that. It was cement block filled with cement covered in brick. So I'll give you any idea. Wow. Um, so we had to take that down. That was a little over $60,000 to take that down and get rid of it. So every anytime there's a structure on it, we want to get rid of the structures and bring it back to the period look. Um, if we're lucky, nothing was plowed too much. and You have the terrain that's somewhat similar. Uh, several battlefields will buy and the terrain is exactly the same. It's never been touched. But again, having it been rural and having it been farms, it's hard to find any actual battlefield that hasn't been plowed up one way or another but we do find it do you guys ever get pushback as you're tearing buildings down because obviously you guys are trying to preserve something but do people ever push back against you and they're kind of on the other side of the coin we have never had that because you know one thing we're pushing here like we're we're saving civil war battlefields and, and for us that are interested in the civil war that's a tremendously um great thing to do but on the other hand, for those who are not interested in the Civil War, it's returning green spaces, something that we're losing daily. Mm -hmm. So uh, Slaughter Pen Farm for interest, that was the major coup for Civil War enthusiasts. But when I go out there, the majority of the people that are out there are walking their dogs. They're, you know, they're walking, they're jogging. And they don't have any. And I talked to them, they really don't have any clue what went on there. It's the green spaces. So we have not had any complaints yet about tearing down anything to make it a green space. 
Um, this is a rural place to take your dog for a walk place for thousands of men died, but (laughs) well, exactly. But, um, you know, again, this was, this was a very rural area and most people like myself moved here because of it. So majority of people here are kind of happy that it's, we're trying to return it back to that rural area, even if it's maybe for, for a reason that they're not all that interested in. Do you see more people interested or, or not interested? I mean, given that it's Virginia and you mentioned the history, the heritage there, I mean, from the founding to the Civil War, or has that interest kind of faded in recent years? Um, I don't think it's faded. One thing you got to understand here, you know, we've got um, the Marine Corps base up the road. We've got Fort Meade here. This is a heavily military occupied area, for, I should say occupied, but everybody, many people here are military, you know, um, so of course they have an interest. <clears throat> um, many people here are part of old families. You would not believe how many people here had ancestors that fought here, family fought here. So if I can take them on a tour and I can kind of say, well, within this hundred yard area, your great, great grandfather fought means something. So, um, it, it, it still holds with the colonial era, um, you know, with the amount of presidents that came out of here and, and the civil war, it holds a lot of interest in history. Um, the Park Service itself, uh, about a half a, about a half a billion, about five hundred thousand people a year, half a million people show up here as tourists. That's a lot of tourism, mm-hmm. and they come to see the battlefields. Um, so it's a very interesting uh, dynamic here. But yeah, the, the interest in history has not waned. It may have changed a little in its in our current environment. Um, but it's still, it's still alive, very much alive. Yeah, that's great to hear. And so we have Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, and then we kind of have an overlap here with the wilderness, um, same location where Chancellorsville's fought. So this is obviously a part of Grant's overland campaign. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you want to kind of lead us through this a little bit and then tell us about some of the ground you've saved there, um, some of the most important ground that's been saved. Um, It's when I, when I do tours here, it's, Chancellorsville and the wilderness are two of the most difficult tours to give unless somebody wants to do know about both of them. Cause like you said, they are overlapping. They were fought on the same ground. What the wilderness is, the reason it's called the wilderness is the area that, the, that was fought in was 74 square miles of thick underbrush and trees with very, very few clearings, farm clearings, very few. Um, back in the early days, governor Spotswood had put up fo- iron furnaces here. And he'd cut down that forest to use to make coal for these iron furnaces. So the regrowth at the time of the battle were trees that were about 15 to 20 feet tall, much shorter than they are now, but they were much denser. You could not take a straight line of battle and walk them into the forest and have them come out in a straight line. Um, It was impossible. So what happened was after the Battle of Chancellorsville, of course, there's, you know, um, a changing of the guard, so to speak, in the Union. Ulysses S. Grant was given total command of the Army, and he had a totally different aspect and a different way he wanted to fight. And um, the opening of the Wilderness Campaign, the Union Army came across the Rapidan River, and they were supposed to go through the wilderness and get out of it into the Spotsylvania area so the Union could fight the Confederates in open ground. But what happened was the supply train had held up the union army and Meade was and warren were like we got to stop and let the supplies catch up to us well they stopped at the edge of the wilderness 
what they did was they had a the union commander now of the uh, cavalry who was just come out of Washington. And the only thing, his name was Wilson. The only thing he ever rode was a desk. So they throw him on a horse and they say, all right, go out and go down the orange turnpike, see if there's any enemy, come back, let us know what's going on. The Union Fifth Corps is now at a place called Elwood, the Lacey House during the war, it's camped out. <clears throat> Wilson goes down the turnpike, stops, doesn't say anything, comes back, and then goes down a road called Parker Store Road, and hey, we're all good. Well, they weren't all good. If he'd gone a little further, he would have seen the Confederate line right there. So the Confederates found out the Union were there, the Union found out the Confederates were there, and the idea of getting through the wilderness before battle ended, and the battle ensued right at the wilderness. So what you basically had was <clears throat> the woods were on fire from, from uh, muzzle blast. You couldn't see it. You couldn't see each other. You couldn't get through the wilderness. Being that it was the type of terrain that it was, cannon and, our, and uh, cavalry were useless. You couldn't use them. So that two-to-one aspect of Union troop, troops, the Confederate troops that we spoke of earlier, kind of evened out because that terrain evened it out for the Confederates. And they fought for several days. Um, General Longstreet was wounded in the wilderness um, almost to the day a year later that Jackson was wounded um, in Chancellorsville. And it basically fought to a stalemate. <clears throat> so there was no winning army there. But it, um, it, it holds as one of the interesting portions of the history of Civil War where the way the war was fought changed. Mm -hmm. We said we had a lot of first in Fredericksburg. Well, think about the way everything was fought prior to wilderness. It was a Napoleonic style of fighting. You had lines, succeeding lines of, <clears throat> of people that would fire, reload. The next line would fire and reload. But now you just fought mostly guerrilla style in the wilderness. They began starting to dig trenches at the wilderness. Trench warfare began at the Battle of the Wilderness. The Napoleonic style basically started to end there. So trenches were beginning to be dug in the wilderness. If you come out here, there are still tremendous amount of trenches and, and gun pits that you can actually stand in, and they're still there, still visible. So when they got done with the wilderness, on the right on the intersection of the Brock Road and Orange Turn, an Orange Plank Road, Grant sat on his horse. And the Union said, well, here we go. We're going back across the river again and wait to fight another day because that's what every battle up until that point had happened. Every battle ended with the Union crossing the river, going back up and waiting to another day. Grant said, no, we're not going back. We're going to continue. We're going to chase Lee and we're going to fight him wherever he is, which was a totally different outcome after a battle that ever happened before with a Union commander. And the troops were elated, Union troops were elated that they were going to chase Lee and put an end to this. So that's the Battle of the Wilderness had a huge impact on the Civil War. So when I say that had a turning point of the Civil War, that decision by Grant, to me and to many people, are starting to be able to understand that was the turning point of the Civil War. After Gettysburg, nothing happened other than the fact that Meade failed to chase Lee and Lincoln got kind of upset with him. Other than that, nothing <laughs> happened. After the wilderness, everything changed. Right. And so, so out of that battlefield, what's some of the most important land you guys have been able to save? Well, we saved the uh, two portions that were Grant's and Meade's headquarters, and that's turned over to the Park Service. We saved um, many acres of the land where the Union Army had camped while they were waiting for their supply train. There is an original road that goes through there that has been untouched 
where the fifth core staged and, and went out where they went to move on towards the Spotsylvania Courthouse. That's intact and saved. Uh, last year, we saved uh, another 30 acres. <clears throat> There's one of those clearings that I told you about in the wilderness. One of the few was called Widow Tap Farm. Um, and that's where the Union Army had pressed down from Brock Road and were about to push the Confederates back. And Longstreet had come up with his Texas Brigade just in time and met them. And at the opening uh, field of Taps Farm, they began to push the Union back. Well, we just saved another 30 acres of that. In fact, it was donated to us by a large subdivision out here called Fallen Lake, one of the largest uh, subdivisions out here. And they saw fit to, to donate to us 30 acres, which was a huge part of where the cores came together and pushed back and forth in that battle. So we saved that. Um, we have saved the site where General, where General Stonewall Jackson's arm was amputated, which, um, you know, if people don't know that story, he, when, he was, when he was wounded by friendly fire at Chanchville, he was brought all the way back to that Confederate hospital, which was back in that area. And that's where he had his arm amputated. And there was a farm about a mile and a half away called Elwood. It was called Lacey House back then. And the, the General Jackson's chaplain, Beverly Tucker Lacey, his brother owned that farm. So as the story went, he had his arm amputated at that field hospital and his chaplain, Beverly Tucker Lacey, you know, if you can imagine the multiple amputations that happened at these field hospitals, there were literally piles of limbs outside the tents. Well, Beverly Tucker Lacey, his chaplain said, now that's Stonewall Jackson's arm. We're not going to toss on that pile. He wrapped it up in a, in a small blanket and a cloth, walked it down to his brother's farm, and they buried it in the family cemetery, where it remains today with people call it a headstone. I call it an armstone uh, in, that, in that area. So we saved that area where that hospital tent was. Um, so there's that protected portion there where that, that had happened. So... Um, Wilderness, um, again, is, is, is a, an interesting battlefield, and we saved quite a bit of it, and we just worked with the American Battlefield Trust and saved another 30-some-odd acres just off the site of where uh, Saunders Field was, which was another opening where that battle had started. So wilderness is, is pretty good. You can interpret it. You can understand it, um, but you also have to bring in Chancellorsville here and there right. when you go over the ground, because What's confusing is you'll stand there and you'll see a sign about the wilderness and next to it, there's Chancellorsville and you kind of have to, you know, you understand when the, when the troops came over and crossed the river in the wilderness, they were actually stepping over the remains of soldiers that were still not interned from Chancellorsville. Can mm -hmm. you imagine doing that? That's not a really good omen. If I was now going to go into battle and I'm stepping over bones of, uh, from the previous year, that's not really a good omen, but right. that's the way it was. So, so we have Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, the Wilderness, the overlap there. Uh, and then the next battle in the uh, Overland Campaign, we have the Spotsylvania Courthouse Battlefield. Uh, so if you want to kind of touch on that real quick, and then we can talk about what you guys have been able to do there. Yeah, Spotsylvania Courthouse was directly after Wilderness. That's when I said Grant said he was going to move on and he was going to follow Lee. Uh, at that point, Lee wasn't quite sure what, Lam what, what uh, Grant was going to do. But he figured he was going to move on in that direction. So we wanted to try to cut him off. So he sent his cavalry out to try to cut him off. Grant took two roads, uh, the Piney Branch Church Road and Brock Road, split his army to go towards Spotsylvania Courthouse. And they got to a place called um, Todd's Tavern. 
Uh, Todd's Tavern was just a, at the time a little ramshackle tavern where you know people would stop, and um, they stopped there, and the Confederates and the Union met in the cavalry battle there. Um, what happened was, um, trying to think of the um, how to block here. Anyway, what happened was that they had one of the largest cavalry battles there. They had held the Union from coming going further towards um Spotsylvania courthouse for a while but one of the bigger battles there was actually between um Sheridan and Meade on the Union side um a call was made above Meade's head about the cavalry being disbanded and sent out without Meade's permission Meade would go to Grant's tent and complain or rather boisterously about him not getting uh, the opportunity to make that decision. And um, Grant basically said to Meade, well, you know, Sheridan is uh, pretty much knows what he's doing. So let him go. And what happened was the Union Army had let go the majority of their cavalry out to reconnoiter further. But what that did do was left the Union Army there at the Todd's Tavern area with no eyes and no ears, not, not knowing what's going on, not being able to figure out what Lee was doing. So from that point to about the 15th, there were small battles that went on and off at, at the um, Spotsylvania Courthouse. And then there was a large battle that went on. And that was uh, what many people understand as the bloody angle, part of the Spotsylvania battlefield. And that was a, a major situation where the Confederates had made a line and made a, what's called a mule shoe or a bulge in a line. If you have a straight line, then you have a sort of a peninsula protrusion in it. It's called the mule shoe. It's a dangerous thing to have because you have to protect not a straight line, but you got to protect your left, your front, your right, and inflated fire and crossfire. Everything could happen. And was, that battle was the biggest part of that battle. It lasted for days. It was hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, it was a tremendously bloody battle. And in that battle was a Confederate um, by the name of Myers, and he was fighting in that battle and his house was literally only a couple miles away up on a hill. Um, we talked before about Myers Hill that we saved 91 acres of. That was his property. And could you imagine fighting in hand-to-hand -hand combat down below your house and you look up and you see smoke and your house is on fire? The Union had taken that hill. That hill had gone back and forth several times for the Confederates in the Union. And actually, Meade came within arm's reach of getting um, captured up in that hill by the Confederates. But Myers stood there and, and, and while he was fighting, watching his house be destroyed. Um, he had sent his family away. He actually moved out of Fredericksburg and moved up there during the Battle of Fredericksburg to get away from the fighting. He wound up in the middle of it anyway. So, um, that. yeah, so it was um, a very interesting um, situation. That's one of the things I like about not just saving land, but there are so many individual stories mm -hmm. um, that make up uh, so much of what went on. But um, yeah, at Spotsylvania Courthouse, we say, like I said, that 91 acres uh, up there on Myers Hill, which we're going to eventually turn into a park. And then we saved uh, two portions of the Poe River, where some battlefields went on that, 40 acres of the Poe River, uh, Harris Farm, that portion, which was um, the fighting towards the end of the battle. Um, a small track, what we call the Fifth Corps track, where the Fifth Corps had dispatched from, is very close to the area where um, 
Sedgwick had been killed. Sedgwick for the Union Army was the highest ranking general killed at all from both sides in the Civil War. And we purchased the property just down the road from that where the Fifth Corps had um, launched from during the battle. Um, Sedgwick, if people don't know about him, he was, the story goes, he was sitting on his horse and artillery shells were dropping around and everybody was hitting the ground and he was asking his, his um, men, why are you, why are you jumping in on the ground? And so they, you know, they couldn't hit an elephant from here. And then at that particular time, a sniper shot got him in the head and, and killed him. <laughs> so there's a monument there for him, but he was the highest ranking general of any side of the Civil War killed. So uh, the Park Service has quite a big area of Spotsylvania Battlefield, but the ancillary areas outside, again, we're picking up and saving um, to better tell that story. Myers Hill is a forgotten battlefield. It was one of the last days of the battle. So after the major fighting in the Spotsylvania area, most people move on. You know, we'll down a, go down a cold harbor or something like that, and they forget about the last couple of days, and Myers was a big deal. So we were able to bring that story into the fold and have actually boots on the ground, an area where you can go and see that and understand what happened. So very important work you guys are doing. And it sounds like you've been able to save a huge portion of these battlefields. Uh, yeah, there's a lot more to go, though. Um, the, the, you know, it's, it's not only the battlefields. What we've had to do, um, if you save a battlefield, like we saved several acres over by the grant headquarters in Elwood. But there's also properties that are view shed, we call view shed properties. In other words, we don't want to save a property that was extremely important. And the property next to it gets sold and a hundred houses go up or townhouses go up and absolutely destroys the ability to stand on that other property. And, and, and in your mind's eye, I understand what's going on. So sometimes we'll have to pick up a property that's not unimportant, but a little less important just to save the view shed mm. and the integrity of the important piece you bought. So it, it starts to expand what you have to do. Um, yeah, that makes sense. We have a lot of properties where you can actually walk on that property of that battlefield. You won't hear cars, you won't hear anything. And you can stand there and you can read that book and look down on your feet and say, I'm standing on that ground and, 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 and in your mind, understand what's going on. Um, it's very difficult when you get those properties around roadside and you're on the side of a highway and you have to if, anyone, if anyone's been to the Alamo, I feel like the Alamo is a good example of that. The Alamo sits in the middle of like, the, yeah. you know, a shopping center. So that's what you guys are trying to avoid, correct? We have our own Alamo here. It's called Salem Church. It's on State Route 3, which was the Plank Road. It was um, involved in the Second Battle of Fredericksburg. It was a field hospital. It was terrain that was fought over. And the Park Service tried to purchase it prior to our groups being formed. And the owner wanted $50,000 more than the assessed value so the federal government wouldn't authorize it. So it was lost. It is now what we use as a poster child for what not to do. It is now, like the Alamo, enveloped in so much everything you can think of. It's just hard to find. And when you go to it and we do a tour at it, you literally have to scream at the top of your lungs to be heard because of the traffic. So that's our Alamo. That's what we say. That's what we don't want to happen again. And it's rarely visited because they can't find it. You can't get into it. And once you're there, you, what you're doing is listening to the traffic. And it's a shame because there's a huge portion of a Chancellorsville battle, which was called the Second Battle of Fredericksburg. So those are the things we're trying to avoid. We've learned from. Is there a way that listeners could 
support you guys, uh, the CB, the CVBTs or ways they can help with this preservation? Absolutely. Please go to CVBT.com, Central Virginia Battlefield Trust, CVBT.com, and just become a member. Um, we're membership-based. Um, we have extremely low overhead. Our motto is dirt and grass, saving dirt and grass. Again, with only two employees and the rest being um, all volunteers, you'd be hard-pressed to find another land trust organization that has staffing of that minuscule size. So you can see that the majority of our money goes to that ground. But cvbt.org, um, definitely sign up, donate. You can find out you can, everything we've looked at and we've done. Um, it would take me forever to sit here and tell you about it, but go on the site. Uh, we have a three-day uh, conference every year that includes um, a uh, gathering at the CVBT office for complimentary drinks and hors d'oeuvres. The next day we have historians. This year we're doing Fredericksburg. Um, we have historians doing tours. We have a major um, cocktail hour and a major dinner and presentation. This year, John Hennessy, who just retired from National Park Service, historian and author, is going to be our keynote speaker. The next day, we, we go to a place called Stevenson Ridge, which is on the Spotsylvania battlefield. Uh, we're going to have a roundtable of historians talking about the Battle of Fredericksburg. That's a historic spot with trenches and everything. So every year, we have a conference. So if you want to come to the conference, by all means, sign up. It's, it's three days of... Uh, uh, camaraderie, battlefield preservation, seeing the battlefields, and just having having a real good time about everything. So, like I said, we've been around our 26 years, so we've been around quite a while. We tend to be around hopefully a lot longer. Yeah, fantastic. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners before we wrap things up here? Um, for those that are members, we absolutely uh, you know applaud your your tenacity in helping us out. Um, we need help. Um, in this in this particular environment that we're in now, you know, there are people that no longer support and there are other people decided to support, you know, on both sides of the coin, but it's gotten tougher out here to make purchases because of the, uh, as you know, your father would uh, attest, the prices of uh, real estate have gone a little bit out of line, I'll say. Um, so things are costing more. It's harder to get them. And uh, federal grants are also harder to get because the government's kind of in a spot, <laughs> so to speak. So, so it's a lot of work. Um, so we need all the help we can get. And we would uh, applaud anybody who would like to join up. Tom, well, a- thank, you, thank you for your time. And I implore all the listeners to go to the cvbt.com. Dot org, sorry, dot org. Well, if, you go to, if, you, if you go to .com, you wind up at some doctor's office. Dot <laughs> <laughs> org, cvbt.org. <laughs> Uh, and we'll make sure to share that and put it in the show notes and everything for them out there. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. Andy, I appreciate it. And I uh, hope to talk to you again. Yes. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Tom Van Winkle and will join us next week as we sit down with Darren Rawlings from the UK. We will discuss the war from the UK perspective and how it is currently viewed over there. I also hope you will share this episode, like it, subscribe, and give us a positive review. As always, head to the civilwarcenter.com for more information, and we'll see you next week.